0: I would like to begin a little mini series for these next few weeks as we begin looking at Titus chapter 2 and looking at the character of healthy churches that to the to the degree that we already do some of these we would even excel still more in characters of being a healthy church at Newtown Bible Church when Dr. Luke records a history of the early church in the book of Acts. He recorded for us under inspiration of the Spirit of God in Acts 2.42 that those that were added to the church continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and prayers. The identifying marks of the early church was the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, the ordinances like what we're going to be concluding our service with around the Lord's table, and prayer, which we've already engaged in. You see, when we're talking about the church, it really doesn't matter how high the steeple or how beautiful the music. It is the message going out from the pulpit that will tell you whether a church In word is a church indeed. If you did not engage with us in December in beginning our look at the book of this little epistle of Titus, then I'd encourage you to go online and listen to our study several months ago of chapter 1. Even if you're not tech savvy and you need a CD, speak with one of us, we would make sure to get one in, in your hands. But back in Titus 1, we had been shown a lot from the Apostle Paul about church government. Titus is part of the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, written about what the church is and how the church functions. And so in chapter 1, a lot about church government and even Titus's mandate to go to the Isle of Crete and to set an order the things which are lacking. Make sure that you see God raising up elders and to equip them for the task at hand. And it's not left to your own whim, your own creativity as to how God staffs His church. He has given us qualifications in First Timothy 3 and here in Titus 1 of qualifications. And as he expounds upon not only their character, but also in their function, he says that they are to be able to exhort and refute. Now, there are many ministries that are merely defensive ministries. A lot of the, what, we're, what are referred to today as discerning ministries are based solely on the negative and what people are doing wrong here and, and there. And it's not that it is not timely for us to drop names when we are teaching on the truth and defining it against the error, to drop names of those who are proponents of error. So often in our polemics of pointing out where people err from the truth. We can get rather pejorative, rather in-your-face, rather, rather defensive in not just what we say, but in our attitude and our posture against it. We need to be all about the defense, defending the, face, the faith once for all delivered. But if that is the soul and substance, if that is all we do, and we don't build up in sound faith, See, we're not just about tearing down wrong approaches and wrong philosophies of ministry, but building people up in the most holy faith. So Paul writes to Titus much about church government and church leadership and the function of the ministry, making sure to expose the rebellious men, the empty talkers, the deceivers, those of the circumcision, those basically from verse 10 of Titus 1 all the way to the end of the chapter. Sound doctrine or teaching the right produces health in the individual and makes them fit for service and spiritual development. That is what we have for our study before us this morning. Sound doctrine or teaching the truth Is what produces health in the individual and makes us fit for service and spiritual development. We need to establish order and godliness in the church. Where do we turn for such issues? I was recently recounting a story of a man who is headed west. And he said, my wife and I were headed west, flying across the country towards California. He said, I'd plugged in a set of earphones into the airline's sound system and for some time had been listening to an engaging story told by the great theologian Bill Cosby. No, but anyways, he was listening to Bill Cosby. Now, we're approaching Los Angeles International Airport, and he says, Cosby's story was building, carefully preparing me, the listener, for the ending. It was what all the descriptions and dialogue had been for the final few lines. I knew the conclusion. He'd worked me up for a great one. Then somebody switched on all the stations. No more Beethoven, jazz, country, and especially no more Cosby for me. We were now all listening to the conversation between our pilot and the control tower at L.A.'s airport. He recounts, I I was a bit disappointed. I found myself wishing they would hurry up and get done with all the information on altitude, winds, and runways so I could get back to Cosby's story. Then it occurred to me how grateful I should be that the pilot and air traffic controller were not hurrying and that the pilot was not listening to, to Cosby. I was thankful our pilot had not dismissed the tower with... Yeah, we've done this all before a thousand times. We'd landed that jet many times, but every landing demanded communication, care, and his undivided attention. In our own lives, we decide who we're going to listen to. We select which messages gain our attention, which words influence our thoughts and our actions, our behavior. And just as the control tower sends out messages about direction, guiding the aircraft through the clouds and weather to a safe landing, so Christ sends out a message of truth to His church to direct our lives. His message of godliness and grace determines our journey in life now and our safe conduct all the way into eternity. Still, The choice is whether we're going to tune in. Paul sent out a message, a divine guidance in his letter to Titus. Just like he had done to Timothy in two epistles, he does in one epistle to Titus to navigate the course of church life. In this particular chapter of Titus 2, he sounds forth the need for personal godliness church order, and repute, and the basis of all of this is the Lord Jesus Christ. Unsheath your sword, if you will, and let's read from the pages of Scripture to kind of gain a context and a flavor of the couple of verses we're going to look at this morning. Let's dig back into chapter 1 and begin reading in verse 10 because when he sets Titus up with his charge, it is against, it is with a contrast against the false teachers. And so with the backdrop of them we begin reading in Titus 1 verse 10, for there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith and not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled." They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Paul did not spare the quill and spilling much ink to make a big deal of false teaching. And against the plethora of false teachers, not only in his day, but in our day, Notice the duty, but as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Mark down at number one, the priority, the priority. This is the doctrinal imperative. What the church should do. Titus' mandate was back in chapter 1 to set in order what was lacking. And notice that right off the bat, right out of the chute, out of the gate, Paul contrasts Titus with the false teachers. He described them, verses 10 through 16 of chapter 1, uh, I just remind you of what most of you are familiar with. There were no chapter divisions when the Apostle Paul originally delivered this. It was from the first word to the last word of this little epistle written to Titus. There were no chapter divisions. Chapter divisions are for our benefit. So that when you're going to, for instance, memorize it, you could say chapter and verse. In a very simple but emphatic way, he says, but you. In the same vein in which he had already done to, to Timothy, in 1 Timothy six eleven, he said to Timothy, but flee these things, you man of God. Do you want to be a man of God? Do you want to be a woman of God? Does your life contrast all the false teaching around you? The apostle emphasizes in these following verses that good works are a necessary and natural result of believing sound doctrine. That to be rescued from sin and death through faith in Jesus, it must result in a changed life that displays self control and reflects God's love and grace. They're automatic. The seed of growth and transformation is planted in the soul of those who have been redeemed by God's grace. All believers need to stand in stark contrast to the false teachers. So even though one of the particular groups we're looking at today is the older men, before you check out in the pew and say, well, this message is not for me. Wrong. It's for all of us. If you're in Christ. Correct belief produces health. It produces wholeness. That is to say, doctrine which remains undistorted and free from the infections of human opinion and philosophy will bring healing to your soul and stability to your life, a life of godliness. You can't tinker with it. Biblical revelation is complete. It's founded upon the prophets Christ and the Apostles. God's unadulterated Word alone carries the power to turn hearts toward Him. That's why I exhorted you as we engaged in today's exposition to take out your sword. This is the living and active Word. This is the sword of the Spirit that cuts away in the soul of every believer everything that's not Christ in producing godliness in us. How was Titus to engage in this feat? Speak. Just open your mouth, Titus. That which is fitting for sound doctrine, speak. Now, I would love at this point to go back to chapter 1 and verse 9 and preach a whole sermon on the importance of teaching to the local church. But uh, that is not the point of the message today, nor do we have the time for that today today. the Apostle tells to his young protege, his, his uh, fellow minister, speak. Just like he will do later on in uh, verse number 15. You notice how that the chapter ends, Titus 2 ends with what it begins with. He says, These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. That is to say that if we were to not have a break at 12:15 today when we usually end the service and we were to finish this chapter it would be the same theme just looking at these different groups and what this speaking consists of this word speak serves the apostle as a virtual synonym For teach, if you've got the ESV, which I think was read in Sunday school, I believe, if I remember correctly, that that that, that was the translation I read this week that translates the word speak these things to teach these things. Same word, didaska. It's used similarly uh, elsewhere in uh, Paul's epistles. Notice about this speaking that this is a command. By the apostle, by the authority to one who is to render obedience. So, a present imperative demands this action be taken repeatedly and regularly. They were not to, so it wasn't just for Titus, it's for every minister of the gospel. Do not deviate, do not capitulate, do not be intimidated, but be aggressive in teaching sound doctrine and its corresponding godly lifestyle that it will produce. Speak it. In fact, the pastor's primary strategy is to teach the truth. Though a lot of things we get engaged in, you go visit the guy in in Danbury Hospital yesterday, and you sit in the study for counseling, you do a lot of other shepherding things, but the main thing is teaching. Teaching is preemptory. To keep you from getting in troubles, and also at times corrective, once you get in the trouble, how to correct it. But it's teaching nonetheless. And just about a year from this verse, the apostle would admonish Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse number 2 through 4. A year from this point, when he says to Titus, Speak these things which are fitting for sound doctrine, he's going to say to Timothy, Preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Why? Because the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Wanting to have their ears tickled, they'll accumulate to themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And they'll turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. So in contrast, Titus, to what I'm going to tell Timothy in a year hence, And in contrast to what I just said to uh, you in verses 10 through 16 of the first chapter, teach everything consistent with sound doctrine. First verse, he says, Speak these things. Verse 15 at the end of the chapter forms this inclusion showing the intent of every verse squished in between there. Sound doctrine is the theme. The true doctrines of the gospel are sound doctrines. They are themselves good and holy and they make the believers good and holy. They make us fit for vigorous service to God. The apostle uses that term sound doctrine, meaning healthy, translate that as health. He uses this word repeatedly, nine times in the pastoral epistles, but five times just right here in Titus. And always it has this, though, though uh, healthy can, have a, it can speak of physical health, the same term, but never in the pastoral epistles. Paul always uses it metaphorically in his letters to Timothy and Titus, transmitting health and well-being. That's what truth produces. And it stands in direct contrast to the Jewish myths and commandments of men back in verse 14 of the previous chapter. Verses 15 and 16 of the first chapter tells us error is that which defiles us. You know, when you're listening to somebody that you know is not quite on, but you don't know where they're off, shut it off. You're drinking poison. Error defiles, but sound doctrine brings holiness and health. No doctrine, no health. Now, I just insert a couple of the many illustrations I could at this point of the sermon. Just yesterday, on the World Wide Web, I saw about a church celebrating their 10th anniversary. You know how they engaged in their celebration? God's been so good to us, He's uh, formed a, bo- uh, a local body and we want to give praise to Him, so they put on a Disney musical. Oh. Or the Christian univers- well-known Christian university that uh, is pretty famous for regularly having conservative politicians or even a Mormon or sports stars speak in weekly chapels. I think that I could submit that to most of you that I know here quite well as somebody, who, uh, people who do not understand what worship is. What is the public worship of God's people and our responsibility to put the majesty of God on display in our songs, in our prayers, in the proclamation of the truth as we interact with the Word written and incarnate? Sound doctrine produces health. Any error produces defilement. Titus, make sure you speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. The things fitting. He's going to flesh out in verses 2 through 10 what these are, what these things are. The truth, the attitudes, the actions that bring glory to God and credibility to gospel. Winsomeness around unbelievers. But I do notice that he's got a direct article here. It, Speak the things for the sound doctrine. There's only one group of truth he's reflecting on. The faith once for all de- uh, delivered. This is a distinct and definite body of truth. That is to say, there's only a certain kind of behavior that fits a certain kind of truth. Only one garb fits it. Every other behavior does not. I think it's so heartbreaking as not just a pastor, but just a Christian brother to find out regularly about those who profess Christ, and you eventually find out they were leading a duplicitous life. The person that shakes your hand on Sunday morning and smiles with you and and says everything is, is glorious and their private life is rather gory in the Lord's estimation. The time and truth go hand in hand. Given enough time, you're going to know the truth about somebody. Be sure your sin will find you out. You pet it long enough and it's going to get out. Apostle Paul writes to the Ephesian believers in Ephesians 5.3. He says, Do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among saints. And he's going to write here to Titus and the rest of the churches on Crete. And by extrapolation, the churches of our day. What truths can we glean from this what godliness looks like, what a redeemed life through and through looks like. Again, if, if Titus had, had spent all of his time refuting false teachers, he would have neglected other matters necessary for the health of the church. He must have a balanced ministry of teaching and exhorting the saints as well as refuting enemies of the truth. So you see the the doctrinal imperative in verse 1, the priority. Mark down number 2, the praxis, or in other words, the practice. What does this doctrine in life look like? The shoe leather, where the rubber meets the road in my life as a believer in Jesus Christ. More specifically, what is godliness rather than a general term? You see, the Bible never divorces doctrine from duty. It is incompatible to say, I know the truth, and yet not do the truth. Being doers of the Word. And so in this doing, in this practice, or the praxis, he looks at five groups that makes up the whole church. You find yourself in one of these groups of people. And the first one, uh, he looks at five groups designated by age, sex, and social position. And this certainly includes every believer on Crete and ought to be manifest by every member of Newtown Bible Church. You see, when we come to this table, we come together. When we serve, we serve together. When we sit in these pews publicly, we worship together I love the way Kent Hughes put it in his commentary on the pastoral epistles, and he titles a little section here on Titus as gospel power in community. That's what Titus is going to be schooled on here, what gospel power in community looks like. And in this little section of uh, Kent Hughes' commentary, I quote, he says, Paul's identification of how gospel power flows through a spiritual community is important because it's a necessary correction of the way many approach the church today. Undoubtedly, a large percentage of people in the modern church are driven by a consumer mentality. He says they value only what is beneficial to them and partake only of what pleases them at the times that they are disruptive to their schedules at at cost not significant enough to burden their lifestyle, he says such persons will pick the church activities that are attractive to them but never think of the impact of their actions on others. Only the most mature have a sense of personal investment in regular fellowship, disciplined worship, and church community life. Paul is determined to make sure that we know what characterizes this mature perspective And participation, unquote. Thank you, Dr. Hughes, for clarifying consumer church mentality from gospel power in community as we serve the Lord and worship the Lord together. One other scholar puts it this way. He said, he said, no condition and no period of life is to remain unaffected by the sanctifying influence of the gospel. Fruit of right doctrine is righteous living. They are inextricably linked together. And the first group in the church to be instructed are the older men. They're all we're going to look at for these last Remaining moments. The older, presbyters. It's referring to those advanced in years. We don't know specifically what age category this is, when you become an old person. I, I mean, I got my uh, AARP card like 15 years ago because they thought that they were writing to the right Parker Rudin, but it was my dad up in Maine. We don't know what, uh, you know, the, the, the ancients would divide life into various stages. And they wouldn't always agree with when, when you start being an older person. Paul uses it of his own de- designation in Philemon 9 of Paul the aged. We don't know if this was Paul with the gray hair and the wrinkles or, or what. He was uh, probably in his 60s at this point, And so uh, there is that older group who are to be sensible and spiritually healthy, which he will will, uh, flesh out in a few terms. Think about the older years. Change can be harder to accept in the older years. Life can become less fulfilling, possibly less satisfying. It can be easy to become a creature of habit. But for the Christian... What is their view of the older years? It should be a greater love for God, a greater love for the people of God, and a greater love for the sacred sacred things of God. How old was Moses when God called him to lead Israel out of bondage in Egypt land? You remember? Eighty. I think that qualifies him as being an older man. At the age of 83, after traveling some 250,000 miles on horseback and preaching more than 40,000 sermons and producing some 200 books and pamphlets, John Wesley regretted that he was unable to read and write for more than 15 hours a day without his eyes becoming too tired to work. And then on his 86th birthday, he admitted to an increasing tendency to lie in bed until 5.30 in the morning. Thank you, Reverend Wesley, for helping me not grumble about the aches and pain and the eye strain and everything else that gets worse with years and to focus on what glorious grace we've got in Christ Jesus. Godly men are to bring strength and stability and wisdom to the church. They are to be cherished by us. Like the proverb in Proverbs 4.18, the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the full day. Notice his list. Four characteristics of godly character that are uh, these are pre- uh, written in the present tense. In other words, they're supposed to be the habits of life. What are the older men to aspire to? for? count them. Jot down temperate. Think of the temperance movement, okay? Uh, this term is used in the literal sense in relation to alcohol, meaning literally holding no wine. But here perhaps... It's not totally devoid of that connection of with, with alcohol, but it's got a different nuance. And the reason why I say we can't cast off the, the, uh, the temperance regarding alcohol is because you remember back in chapter 1 in verse um, see if I can read my own chicken scratch. You look at… Uh, actually, uh, look ahead at verse 3 of chapter 2. Uh, The older women aren't to be uh, enslaved to much wine, they're to be temperate. Think of the word sober. So even if it's not in the context of alcohol, an older man is to be clear-headed, they're to exercise sound judgment in every area of life, they're to be known for being self-possessed, not living at the whims of their appetites and their own desires. They've got well-ordered priorities. They are temperate. Number two, they're dignified or worthy of respect. That word semnos, dignified, speaks of one who is serious-minded. In other words, they're not a clown. And it's not that they don't have a sense of humor. That's not what Paul is speaking of here. To be dignified means that his actions and his demeanor make him worthy of respect. Serious and worthy. In other words, he's not frivolous and silly. He's lived long enough to evoke respect because the gray hairs have been found in the way of righteousness. There's wisdom demonstrated. Demonstrating so that we need to demonstrate honor to them. Greek wordsmith uh, Reinecker says that the word denotes moral earnestness, affecting outward demeanor and inner intentions. You know, if I'm saying he, he's not silly, he's not a clown. In other words, he's not joking. Uh, he's he's not laughing at immorality, vulgarity, or anything ungodly. He takes those serious. It ain't funny. That ought to even be true in our thoughts. Uh, Paul, when he writes to the Philippians, talks about how our thought life is to be dignified. Philippians 4.8. And when he writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.2, 2, it is a result of prayer. We, this ought to be on our prayer list. God, as I advance in years, would you make me dignified, serious about the events of life? It's been around a long time. The older have seen the pain of what it's like living in a fallen world, and what tragedy befalls believer or unbeliever, and the emptiness of this world system. So there's a, you could say it, He's got a gravity about life, a weightiness. So they are to be temperate, they are to be dignified, third, sensible. Maybe your translation renders that self-controlled. In other words, he needs to be in charge of himself. covers a, range, a wide range of thoughts and attitudes and behavior. He resists the world's attractions, and controls his physical passions. We read in uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians that the fruit of the spirit working in the life of a believer. What does he produce? Self-control. True control is a divine ability. It is a virtue that doesn't just apply to the older men. Matter of fact, you, you, you notice that uh, uh, it's applied to older men. In uh, It's applied to... Older women, it's applied to young women, and it's applied to young men, and it's even implied in the last group he'll address in verses nine and ten of the slaves. You know, because Paul directed that self-controlled, sensibly behavior be evident in every believer, he definitely indicates that it's it's needed, it's it's obtainable. It's essential even in contemporary evangelicalism for us to have men that set the pace of what it looks like to lead a life of self-control, controlled by the Spirit of God. If you're to become sensible in your older years, you better be pursuing it as a young man, cultivating that grace today. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible. And you'll notice that fourth characteristic, sound. There's our word healthy again. Before we look at how he describes the soundness, he started back up in the previous verse by talking about a healthy doctrine. Used it figuratively of soundness. He says these men, these older men are sound in three areas. And he uses these present participles. In other words, this is a continual healthness in their life, soundness that such doctrine produces. A healthy Christian lives as a result of healthy doctrine. As I was perusing through uh, Kent Hughes' commentary again this week, he, he quotes another New Testament scholar who explained this participle of being sound, soundness, health, expresses cause or means of the behavior just listed. It is what enables older men's behavior. How does a man become temperate, dignified, or sensible? It is through the means of faith, love, perseverance. So he speaks of soundness three nouns three areas of life that this character is to show itself healthy in our lives number one in faith faith forms one of the pillars of Christianity health in our relationship and interaction with and obedience to the Lord we've got faith in God faith in in the, the truth once for all delivered to the saints you cannot be sound without it Faith encompasses correct doctrine, correct relationship, and correct living. Foundation stone number one. You want to be a healthy older man? Be healthy in faith. He says, second of all, be healthy in love. Another pillar of the Christian faith without which everything else crumbles. He envisions a harmonious relationship with God and the issues of self-giving to other people. Are we to promote ourselves as older men that are, are healthy? Well, do you give yourself away in the service of others? Seeking the welfare of them at the expense of great personal loss. Do you lovingly forgive and lovingly serve? If you wanted to draw a cross-reference here, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7, what love does in love. John writes in his first epistle about believers that practice the truth that we love one another because love is of God. Three areas of character in faith, in love, and in perseverance. This may have replaced the familiar virtue. You notice the trio in the New Testament, faith, hope, and love. And... Uh, So there's consideration about this perseverance replacing that third, the the hope, though the two are closely linked together. This is the ability to endure hardships and accept disappointments that we live in a fallen world. Hard things are going to happen. We're going to bear up under it in perseverance, gospel perseverance. We don't lose heart because we know that God works all things together for good to them that love Him, to them that are called according to His purpose, Romans eight twenty-eight. And He's going to use it to conform me to the image of my Savior, Jesus Christ, verse 29. Matthew Henry notes, aged persons are apt to be peevish, fretful, and passionate, and therefore need to be on their guard against such infirmities and temptations. The older need patience with the younger generation. Those full of years should be full of grace and goodness, the inner man renewing more and more as the outer decays. I think we'd refer to that as growing old gracefully. You know, as, as life gets older and you've been around, instead of being jaded, he says, you're erupting into new hope, new perseverance. So, the older men should manifest a healthy trust in God, love towards others, and hopeful perseverance and endurance. You older men are to exhibit health in the faith or truth. The Christian duty of love is to be exhibited. You're to be a bastion of love and in patience waiting for the Lord's return. This is the repeated trio throughout the New Testament, faith, hope, love. Paul saw this evidence in the young believers at Thessalonica. They were persevering. He told Timothy, make this the goal of your pursuit, especially as you've seen Me, Paul, the aged, model this before you, 2 Timothy 3.10. The latter years of life, especially for men, they can be filled with regret, a sense of uselessness or worthlessness, feelings of despair, self-absorption, or even a tendency to relax moral standards because of old age. I can't wait to retire, then I get to do whatever I want. Is that the perspective? Not sure it is. Instead of loosen up, Paul says, in essence, ratchet it up. That we all might exclaim with Paul at the end of his life I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. And I think you, as well as myself, would admit that sadly, in both biblical history and secular history, we see a vast record of scores of people who do not finish well. Don't let that be the marker on your tombstone. Here lies John Doe, who didn't finish it. Yeah, he ran a great race, but he didn't persevere all the the way to the end, to the glorification of his soul. Older men, do you embody these four qualities that the Apostle Paul admonishes us with? And if you're not in that group, do you have those in mind to learn from as Timothy and Titus would learn from Paul the aged? There's such value in our study of the pastoral epistles. We're right now studying Titus. As I started jotting down why I love, teaching through the pastoral epistles i thought number 1 that the pastoral epistles shed much light needed on the important problems of church administration there are so many questions on how do we do this in the church how do we do that well have you considered opening your bibles and see how god says to do it do ministry god's way it gives us direction regarding public worship what qualities make up a good pastor you know, I, uh, I was engaging in a uh, Facebook discussion a couple of weeks ago. People were wondering, well, what do I tell search committees that are looking for a pastor? You take them to the pastoral epistles. Hello. tells us what makes a good pastor. It tells us what makes a worthy elder. It tells us what makes conscientious deacons. It tells us what our responsibility is towards the needy and the downtrodden what real religion looks like. When somebody comes to you for biblical counseling, whether they're aged or aged men or aged women or young men or young women, it teaches you how to counsel them, what they are to aspire towards. So it sheds much light. Number two, they, they stress sound doctrine, healthy doctrine. You know, the view... Of some, that it makes no difference what you believe as long as you're sincere. Pastoral epistles help us see that as a lie. It does matter what you believe. And it does teach us how to deal with those that contradict the truth. How to deal with heretics. Number three, what's the value of studying pastoral epistles? That they demand consecrated living. That doctrine automatically assumes a duty of what it, how it is fleshed out in life. Many people, even at Newtown Bible Church, can be doctrinally sound but corrupt in practice. Don't let that be said of you. Why do we study pastoral epistles? You, we see number four, lifting up an example of the closing of a life of the great apostle Paul. To aspire. You know, when he says, Older men, make sure you've got these three characteristics of a soundness in faith. This is the older man telling you older men what to aspire to as he did. It even gives us, number five, a history of the church in the third quarter of the first century. But number six is my favorite rationale. Why do we study this little epistle along with First and Second Timothy? Because as in every other epistle of the New Testament, God speaks to us. And so as He speaks, so we listen. And if you will be quick in our study of Titus to notice not only how he begins, but how he continues his argument through these, this little phrase, in order that, in order that, in order that. Verse 4, verse 5, verse 8, verse 10, he's doing that repeatedly to express the purpose of the behavior, the purpose of these affections, the purpose of gospel fruit that is encouraged that we not miss proper Christian behavior has a significant impact on pagan attitudes. And as Titus was going about in every church on Crete, bringing them in conformity with God's written revelation. Establishing elders. Establishing churches according to the book, biblical philosophies of ministry. The onlooking world had no question this was the real deal. How about our onlooking world? Do we have that kind of impact on the pagan attitudes that surround us Silencing opponents by correct Christian teaching and attracting the lost to Christ and affecting the entire missionary enterprise of the church. If I could conclude with more of a Christocentric focus on the behavior of our belief, our doctrine that dictates our duty to God... This is not just a bootstrap theology, work it up, do this, do that. And I think that the the master expositor, Donald Gray Barnhouse, succinctly captures the intent of this passage. Years ago, this pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philly delivered a message that aired on CBS radio, and in this nationwide address, the noted Bible teacher speculated about what would be the most diabolical strategy that Satan could conspire against the church in the years to come. To the astonishment of many listeners, Barnhouse imagined that all the bars in Philadelphia would be closed Prostitutes would no longer walk the streets, pornography would no longer be available. The streets would be clean and all the city neighborhoods would be filled with law-abiding citizens. All swearing and cursing would be gone. Children would respectfully say, yes sir and no ma'am. Every church in town, Barnhouse added, would be packed to overflowing. There would not be one church pew that could contain one more citizen. So what, you might ask, could be wrong with all that scenario? Barnhouse then delivered the knockout punch. The deadliest, most diabolical danger, he said, would be that in each of these filled to capacity sanctuaries, Jesus Christ would never be preached. In these pulpits, there would be much religious talk, but nothing said of the supreme authority and saving work of Christ upon the cross. There'd be mention of morality, but no Christ. There'd be expressions of cultural concern and political commentary, but no Christ. There'd be positive thinking and inspirational stories, but no Christ. There'd be the external trappings of Christianity, but no internal reality of Christ. The most diabolical ploy of Satan would be for churches to be bulging at their seams but no proclamation of Christ and Him crucified. With this deadly silence, people would never learn of Christ. Thus, they could never learn or follow Him. What Barnhouse feared has in large measure transpired in our present day. Countless houses of worship across the nation and around the globe. Grand steeples. Great music. Little proclamation of Christ. Much empty rhetoric. But little reality of the suffering Savior. These churches preach everything except Christ Himself. Tragically, too many churches and pulpits Have everything except the main thing. So don't lose Christ in our endeavor to engage with godliness through this little letter written to Titus. And I trust that even as we conclude in prayer and prepare our hearts for the Lord's table and David draws our attention to that truth, that communion every other week that we partake of would not just be ritual. If you know Christ... And you're rightly related to him and others partake, partake richly. We come to the table together. Would you pray with me? Our God, we thank you for divine instruction given from heaven about houses of worship, what they are, how they function, how we as individual believers are to work out our own salvation in fear and trembling. To know how our belief translates in our behavior, that you would produce godliness through Christ, motivated for the glory of Jesus. We put off sin and put on righteousness for your own supreme glory. Captivate our hearts with Calvary afresh, thinking of the one who lived the life that we could not and died the death that we deserved, and all of his righteousness accounted to us through faith. Thank you for Jesus, in whose name we ask it.